Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. Every week we'll be celebrating the spirit of Manchester by speaking to somebody who's helped to shape the city. This week I'm joined by acclaimed musician Aziz Ibrahim, who has worked with, amongst others, the Storm Roses, Ian Brown, Simply Red, as well as establishing himself as a well-respected solo artist. He's going to tell us about growing up in Longsight in a traditional Pakistani family. When you ventured out as a South Asian, it was like, you know, you had to watch your back. He'll also speak about producing music with legendary artists like Paul Weller. He's going between these two faders and he goes, he turns around to me and he goes, God's a mank. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the studio one of the greatest guitarists I've ever seen uh, and a true master of the instrument, a great showman as well and also a chap who I personally love spending time with. Aziz Ibrahim, how are you brother? Oh, well after hearing that, 
<laughs> better. Yeah. I'm good, Clint. Thank better you. Better than you were. No, I appreciate that. Better Thank than you were when you walked in. No, it's great. Yeah. It's always, uh, always great to see you. Thanks for coming to talk to us on Humans of Excess Manchester. Pleasure, mate. First thing I want to talk about is your childhood. I know you were born in Longsight, weren't you, to Pakistani parents? Uh, delivered at home. Yeah. yeah. Midwife days. Proper home birth. Uh, yeah, home Brilliant. birth in Longsight. Yeah. And uh, literally, it was, a terrace, it was a terrace house street and still is. It's still standing. Um, it was Ashfield and then we moved to Bankfield Avenue. Uh, it's just on off Dickinson Road, and then um, I think around age of seven, eight, I moved across the other side of the road onto the Anson Estate. And nineteen sixty-four, you were born. So, do you have any memories of the sixties part of your life, or not those first few years? I was very traditional in terms of home life. You know, uh, as you said, Pakistani parents, and that's where I understood at home. When you ventured out as a South Asian, it was like you know you had to watch your back. <laughs> Even in that neighbourhood, so back then it oh, wasn't. Definitely. Was it not? as settled the community as it is now. Would you use that word settled, established? <coughs> I mean, was you have it, to live in a community to know whether it's settled or not. I don't know whether it's settled. Mm. Um, it's still uh, fragmented, I believe. Right. You know, um, but in those days, you know, you had the National Front marching through. I remember right. when they used to come and rally on you know, Dickinson Road, march through, uh, and everybody get together to go and meet them, you know, to greet them. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is particularly probably the early 70s, I'm guessing that was. Was, was that scary for a kid to be experiencing that? Or did you just take it in your stride? I, I think because of my nature, I did take it in my stride. It was uh, it was scary, but, you know, uh, those days, you know, I was running, I won't want to say running in gangs or anything, but you hang, you hung out with your mates and, you know, mm. those kind of strength in numbers, so to speak. Yeah. And predominantly my mates were not from Pakistani backgrounds because, as you say, as we were just discussing, you know, they didn't really venture out. You You stuck to your own and... You watched your back, and mm. um, but because I'm probably more adventurous in uh, a lot of ways, as you can tell by obviously ended up a you know a rock and roll musician and not a doctor. Yeah. So, well, no, actually, what am I saying? I am a doctor, <laughs> thanks to Salford Uni. Yeah, shout out to Salford Uni for oh, that. They've all so, got them, haven't they? Even, yeah. Hooky, even Hooky's got, got them. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. It was the same time Hooky got his. Right. Yeah, and Tony Walsh and Dave Moutry and a few other heads. But mm. no, I, I just generally I've always ventured out. It's just my nature. That's who I am. I'm a kind of a blend between, yeah, I like academia and academics. The academic side of me is I like research. And it just, I turned research to music and into instruments and playing the guitar, which I always saw as like a, a rebellious instrument, uh, a symbol of rebellion, as in, you know, that kind of the rock and roll, the original rockabilly kind of symbol for me, because that's yeah. what I grew up with. I grew up with. Buddy Holly and uh, Elvis and uh, Bill Haley and the Comets. And is that the music your parents were listening to? No, not no. at all. <laughs> okay, what were they more traditional in the taste? Completely traditional. Yeah. So theirs was Bollywood, um, poetry, Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, um, all the the bigs of the Bollywood film industry. Right. At the same time as telling me, you know, music is a waste of time and, and evil. <laughs> <laughs> particularly, particularly evil. My dad, God bless him, was sat there watching some Bollywood film, which you know are all musicals, and there's not one that isn't a musical, or very rare you'll find one that isn't a musical. He'd be telling me, you know, forget music. And um, here I am, a musician. What did your parents do for jobs? Uh, my dad actually, I mean, he passed away in 2006. He worked for the Reuters. He was in the Press Association. So he worked out from Deansgate, where the Reuters office was, and they distribute the news, basically, to the different papers. I used to have a, a copy round. I was a copy runner right. in, like, uh, when I was about 16, 17. And they used to send I worked for the Sunday People, and they used to send me to the match. So I, I would be in a black cab. 
going to either like Anfield or Main Road or wherever it was, pick up the uh, photographs from the pitch, go down to the goalposts, get the photographs. Get the film, probably. For the pink. You bring them back. It'd yeah. be for the pink, wouldn't so you'd it? Remember? Collect the film. The, ca- the cameraman would give you the film. They give me an envelope, brown envelopes. And you run back to the, get it developed in the offices. Bring it back, develop. Yeah, run down to the what was called the stone on Deansgate in uh, what used to be you know, like Manchester Evening News there yeah. before you know um, Sangster and Murdoch changed things in terms of DTP and whatnot and uh, yeah. and uh, it went all digital. But in those days, it was print. It's amazing, isn't it? That was think, my experience. I yeah, think what you of... were doing 10 minutes ago before you started this, you did a quick Facebook Live on your phone yeah. to thousands <laughs> of people. The, the, the old way of doing that was some bloke running down to some event, getting yeah. the film, yeah. getting the script, getting back to the office, print it up, getting a newspaper and get it out the day Absolutely, after. yeah. I remember the um, the machines where the news used to get, you know, the teletype things, they used to come in, the news stories from around the world. They used to come in and then they'd get ripped off the top Handed to somebody like me or down a shoot, you'd pick it up and take it to the editor, the right desk, and then he would send it to the appropriate reporter or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> it was great to see it from the inside. And my dad actually worked in Pakistan for the Reuters there after he left the army. He was in the Indian army. And because, uh, I mean, bear in mind, you know, Pakistanis were all Indians and Bangladeshis were all East Pakistanis and then Indians mm-hmm. before that. So we were all Indians <laughs> and my dad was in the Indian Army and then he he was looked after by a guy who owned the Reuters and then he found a posting for him in um, Manchester and that's, he came over in the late 50s and, uh, you know, you leave your family behind basically. He was living on five pounds yeah. uh, a month or something like that. And that's in the days before you, you couldn't just jump on a plane for 30 quid and fly back to visit your family at a weekend, no. could you back then? It wasn't like that. Not like that at all, but you have to, you know, I mean, where to stay, where to eat. You know, people wouldn't even accommodate you. Uh, there wasn't food. People wouldn't serve you. I think about their life and the life I have. I never kind of think that, oh, you had it easy or anything like that. I always think I'm lucky. Yeah, I'm fortunate, you know, to be able to play um, music. I've never, ever taken that for granted. I mean, I come from a very poor background family. And um, we then my parents provided, which is great, because some people in this world, in this city... Have nothing, you know. They do everything themselves. Mm. Uh, you never know a person's story, do you? You know, really, how they've achieved what they've achieved. That's true, and that's part of the reason we're doing these podcasts because we want those stories. Because everybody knows you for what you do. We're going to talk about that, but it's nice to get yeah. back to where it started. What about your mother? What does she do for work? Well, like a lot of um, <clears throat> South Asian parents, the, the moms generally tended to. Um, do machine work, you know, uh, for a factory making clothes. So somebody would turn up with a big bag of cut Mm -hmm. uh, clothing and they would stitch it all together. So she was like an industrial machinist, but everybody worked from home because they had kids to look after. So they would just do the rounds, especially like in Longside and Rush Home and Moss Side and (coughs) Cheetah Mill and so forth. They they would just turn up in the van, drop off a big bag of clothing. My mum would stitch it together. They would turn up in the evening. And that supplemented the income for my dad and made it possible for us to go to school and have, you know, the books and things we needed and the shoes and whatever and the, yeah. and those black plimsolls you used to get <laughs> oh, yeah, from, yeah. <laughs> you know, K's or whatever it yeah. was. Oh, yeah. Uh, never mind Dunlop Green Flash and all that. It was uh, a case that, you know, you got them black plimsolls first. There wasn't even training shoes in them days, was there? No training shoes. I remember on... I got my first pair of training shoes. i got to tell you, I'm big on basketball, so my first love is actually basketball. My first shoes, I went to a basketball clinic run by Colgate <laughs> and they, I won Best Most Improved Player Award at 
12 years old and they gave me a £10 voucher which I went straight to the Trafford Centre, uh, not Trafford Centre, sorry, to um, Stratford Arndale. Arndale, yeah. <laughs> to, and there was a sports shop in there and these original 1980s Adidas Illy Nastasis <laughs> for £13. Wow. So I had a £10 voucher and my mum gave me £3 something because I needed bus fare too. And that was my first pair of decent trainers. I couldn't afford the proper basketball. There was only shell toes available at that time. Uh, I remember the history of trainers, you see, because... I went to Burnage High School, secondary school first, and um, I remember sat in on the floor in the hall and this basketball player from America walked in, uh, whose name escapes me right now, but it, Jeff Jones. His name was Jeff Jones, and he had the first pair of leather Nike boots that I've ever seen in my life with a swoosh, a blue swoosh, white boots, up to the ankles, and we were all gobsmacked. He walked into school dressed like that? No, no, he had his tracksuit top on. Was it in the gym or in the classroom? It was in the hall, in the school uh, gym hall, and he walked in, but we were sat on our asses on the floor, cross-legged, But so his legs were in view with our (laughs) eyesight, and these boots walked past us, and all we had was, like I said, plimsolls, maybe somebody had green flash, Dunlop green flash, and that was it, and Mm. these white American basketball boots walk past us and that is so iconic in my life I just remember that event so clear Jeff Jones with these boots that nobody's ever seen and you know you know what trainers are today you know it's like the world to most people Um, it's all subculture isn't it Absolutely, I love it. How did you do at school academically then did you do all right were you bright Um, people said I was (laughs) I never felt bright Um, I grew up with that kind of idea that I was going to be a doctor so it's strange how I've ended up an honorary doctor. I wanted to do something different. And also, I was a very, I suppose in a sense, I was angry inside because I, was, I hated the stereotype, the labelling, the generalisation of South Asian culture mm. that we play badminton and cricket and and uh, we're going to be doctors, doctors lawyers. Yeah. No, but, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's admirable that people do that, come from poverty and want to feed families and support family and support your each other in that way and the community spirit in it. But I also believe that you have to branch out, that you have to step out of the norm, out of the safety zones and mingle with people so that people can get to know you and that you can get to know them. How else is somebody supposed to uh, know about a culture or religion or anything? Because if they don't, they end up with words like Muslimic, (laughs) Muslimic law, because there's no exposure to... I don't hate people like that, you know? I feel that something's wrong in terms of exposure and the poor lad's not met people or even had the, you know, chance to, you know, balance his life. (laughs) It's obviously one-sided in that way. And I feel that it's because we don't mingle enough or we stick too close to our comfort zones and say, and those comfort zones, they're there for a reason. They're safety zones. That's why they are Mm. what they are. And talk about that rebel spirit. So you mentioned that the the rockabilly, the buddy ollie, Mm. The 50s rock and roll, twangy guitar. Was that where the rebellious streak first came from? Was it that hearing that and thinking that's not the same as my family are doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm not my dad. I'm not my mum. I have a lot of their traits. Yes, I have that very much, you know, mind your P's and Q's, be a gentleman. And it doesn't work, <laughs> you know, in society, you know, full well in society, you know, so you meet somebody and you're like, how do you do? And they're like, yeah, all right, mate. <laughs> and then it's kind of like you're out of touch. But that's what you're taught, and that's the history of colonialism. You know, the schools and the 
grammar schools it's generated abroad and the way that it's filtered down. I mean, you talk about India, you're talking four centuries of uh, colonial rule and indentured peoples and the mentality and even colour comes into it and being fair-skinned is better than being dark-skinned and all this, which I try my best to shake off and all those inhibitions. But um, what I was learning was going to school and fitting in with West Indian culture, fitting in with Caucasian white, you know, Mancunian culture and so learning, growing up with it really and then coming home. It's like a clash of cultures, mm. but you're somebody new you're somebody different you're not somebody who lives abroad and you're not entirely somebody you know a white mancunian christian you can't eat pork you can't <laughs> you go to ch- i remember coming home <laughs> from school in primary school st agnes primary school i went to st john's before that before we moved and um i came home and i asked me i asked my mum mum am i c of e <laughs> and I got a little clip around the ear. Oh no, you're a Muslim son. <laughs> I was like, CV, what is that CV? But we used to go St Agnes Church as yeah. well, and we'd you know sing carols and things and make things and whatever. And it's that confusion of, but it's just normal, it's natural. But what about the guitar then? Where did the love of her with the guitar start? It's quite simply, primary school again. Um, school teacher, I used to dig out his guitar. In those days, you used to get a free bottle of milk. And then he'd, he'd have a little sing-song thing and yeah. everybody go off to sleep. But I was like, wow, what is this thing, this silver-stringed angelic kind of instrument? It was the guitar. So when I went home, I used to mind my parents all the time about, I want a guitar, can I get a guitar? But it was, you know, we didn't have much money. And, like, there was a guitar in a shop called Joytown on Beresford Road in the window. We used to have miscellaneous kind of items. And it was £5. It was a lot of money. Like I said, my dad's wages when he first started were five. It went up to ten. Um, so at seven years old, I, I did manage to get it, and I got it for um, my birthday. Probably by the eighth birthday, yeah, I got this five-pound acoustic guitar, and that was it. It was no looking back. It was just I was just hungry to learn and mm. find stuff out. But we had um, an old reel-to-reel that had been left behind in the house by the previous owners or people are renting, and on that reel-to-reel was that'll be the day. And summertime blues, <laughs> so and um, also Peggy Sue, yeah. Amazing. So I was learning these songs. I had a guitar. Somebody or my brother showed me how to tune, and I was trying to find the notes for summertime blues, and that would be the you know kind of and all that kind of melodies. I found the notes, and that's how it began, and that's how I still learn music today. Yeah. You play me something, I hear something in my head. I can hear it, I can find it on the guitar. I can't read it, I can't write it, but I can find it with my ears. And my ears have become so kind of tuned. I remember working last year with the Manchester Camerata Orchestra and I couldn't understand about how they don't work with improvisation. Blagging your way through blagging. life. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like blagging your way through music yeah. and not actually being an expert, but you find that you develop a skill set. So that's probably why I've moved genres, genre hop so much because... Music is my country. It's not a case of, you know, I look at like, oh, I come from this country. Because I don't actually come from Pakistan, if you think about it. My parents were born in India. Civil war moved them and a country was formed. But I was actually born in Manchester. So I don't know where I am, but I do know that music is my country. And anybody who's part of that country, I can relate to. Beautiful. (laughs) One of the things we're going to talk about later in the chat, but I'll, I'll bring this in now, is that one of the things I love about your 
musicianship is that you've never strayed too far away from those Pakistan, those Indian roots mm. in, in the sounds you make, whether it be with Ian Brown, whether it be with you work with Weller, people like that. But does that, does some of that, back then when you were that seven-year-old kid with that acoustic guitar, were you sort of mimicking some of the stuff your mum and dad were listening to to sort of keep them happy or to impress them at the same time? It's funny you mention that. So I've spent two years now, I've been fortunate to get two Arts Council grants over the years and they've been about exploring identity. They've been about me finding out about roots, finding out about why I do what I do and what is it I do. And obviously, you know, in Manchester, you've got the greats, you know, the bigs, John Squire, you know, uh, Johnny Marr. Um, and in, in the country, you've got the other bigs as well that people kind of say, you know, whether it's Mark, you know, from Shetlands, whoever, that all over the place there are bigs in, in the guitar field. But I, I came from such completely the opposite forms of music in transition, you know, from Simply Red in the 80s. And then there's kind of a grey area that people don't even know about in my prog rock kind of era of playing for Asia and being the only Asian in Asia, of course. And then... <laughs> uh, um, and then even hot chocolate for a while with Errol Brown and I didn't uh, know about that. So uh, I spent ten years in reggae music and yeah. then worked with Dennis Brown, Barrington Levy, Errol Duncan, Freddie McGregor, um, Mossside uh, reggae groups. That's probably my biggest history. Yeah. But um, in the early days, I learned to emulate anything that I couldn't afford. So the wah wah pedal and the echo pedal, I can emulate. And then home culture made my mindset almost always think of music not in black and white keys, as in the twelve note system of pianos, but as in the notes in between, the notes that you can't see, but they exist on South Asian and Arabic and instruments from all over the world. I was on tour once, nineteen eighty seven with Simply Red, sat in a music shop on Forty Eighth Street in New York City, and a guy tapped me on the shoulder and he heard me playing. He went, "Hey man." how do you play that shit? <laughs> and it, I said, well, this is how I'm doing it. I was emulating kind of sitar and stuff like that. And he picked up on that. And it was a, what made me think that uh, that's the secret. Being yourself and what comes naturally to you is what music is about. That's what people respect. And this guy turned out to be Vernon Reed from Living Colour. <laughs> wow. It was 87 then. It was just releasing Vivid on Epic. He showed me anyway, Vernon Reed's kind of, he picked up on something which set my path that I said, this is it. It's, that came naturally to me. And also, like, you know, the bass player explained to me, it's like he says, you, you know that, uh, I won't do a, a, a pseudo-Jamaican accent, right? <laughs> so uh, he would explain to me about the Jolly Green Giant or the tin of sweet corn. He'd say, that's how you imagine yourself when you play the bass, a big man <laughs> with a guitar, slow stride, loud and proud. Dressed in green. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> yeah, green and purple and yellow. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Simple Red 87. That was the first time I ever heard your name because the local news went mad on the idea that the world's biggest band, Simple Red at the time, which were pretty much one of the biggest bands in the world, yeah. had suddenly got this kid on board. I think he was 23, weren't he, actually? But yeah. they described it as like just this, this young genius prodigy that just the most amazing guitarist that Mick Hucknall had invited to join this amazing band. What was it like when you got that call? I didn't believe it at first. I thought it was my mate, Delroy, messing around <laughs> on the phone. Yeah, so then uh, I kind of, when it dawned on me, yeah, he started singing. But you know what really I remember from that time the most was the love and support from all the South Asian radio stations, Asian Sound Radio. and But there were various independent stations mm. 
and Sunset and people like that. You know, they were all kind of bigging me up. And I, I loved that. It was just that oh, I understood it. I felt it. And, I, and to tell you the truth, I embraced it. I always wanted to be... I don't want to say role model. I think that's in the perception of other people's eyes. But in a sense, leading a field or being part of a pioneering area where it was encouraging other people to tread and, and yeah. follow suit. So I, I love that aspect. The band, wow, I was, you know, 21, 22, whatever. And um, getting paid loads of money and traveling the world and for the first time. Of course, it was my first experience. And then those days, I was like so much money in music, full-on production. You had somebody ironing your clothes, you know. <laughs> and uh, Elliot Rashman, who was management at the time with Andy Dodds, saying, I'm taking you shopping. Right, I'm going to buy you five, six Italian suits or Japanese or whatever. And Thierry Mugler's and, you know, and then obviously they had to deal with Paul Smith's and, I had a, like a wardrobe of these fancy suits and things, which I've never worn suits, you know, trainers, T-shirts <laughs> with me. But <laughs> What a gig though, what an amazing gig for it, somebody that, that... It was. And I also, because I, I love music, so there wasn't any kind of prejudice towards the music. Okay, personalities, I learned something about the music business that it's not just about the playing, it's about your relationships, it's about getting on with people and the likes and dislikes and the politics of don't say this and don't say that. and you know. But then again, I learned the fact that you should say what you want to say because at the end of it, if it doesn't work out, you've only cheated yourself and you feel like you've got nothing left, you've got no credibility, you've got no self-respect. So I think that's what I stepped away with from that. And the roses came after that. So it's mid-90s now, isn't it? Early 90s, mid-90s, yeah. yeah. I was kind of down and out in a sense of not enough money, so I started teaching at schools in Shropshire of all places. <laughs> but it was kind of in wherever I had a contact and I started teaching in public schools, private schools, primary schools, secondary schools. I had a full week of teaching, but the income, you know, I needed it. And um, I was driving out then, driving back, and then literally it was almost like having to tell these young kids that, I'm sorry, I can't teach you anymore because I've joined the Stone Roses. <laughs> Another amazing sirs gig. Jo sirs join the Stone Roses. <laughs> so from, from the world's biggest soul band to one of the world's biggest prog rock bands to the world's biggest baggy indie band, it's not, not a bad uh, bit of your CV, that, is it? It's, uh, it's the journey, you know. Yeah. How does that happen and how do... I mean, that's uh, all... You know, credit to Manny and um, Ian Brown. I was always in mates with uh, Robin Maddox and uh, and Nigel Lippertson. Um Yeah, for them to put aside, you know, any kind of, you know, we nah, he's from this band or that band, he's yeah. not right. It was a case of they recognised something, they saw something. It's a real testament to your, your skills. You know, you're quite a unique guitarist, and even back then people recognised that. So it wasn't them exactly. being charitable, it's them being, this is the greatest guitarist in the region, let's get him in the uh, the roses for a bit now that Squire's opted out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm grateful for that. I really am. I'm grateful for the fact that they gave me the confidence in that sense, in that, and gave me an opportunity as mm -hmm. well to do what I do, and which has demonstrated the most on unfinished monkey business and then albums after that too. Uh, and then working with Paul Weller, even Paul Weller, you've got to bring in the equation. And I've got to say, you know, he's one of the nicest gentlemen I ever met who also gave me an opportunity to write, 
to do vocals on his album. Yeah. There's a <laughs> track called God. Aziz did a track called God on the 22 Dreams. It's a spoken word thing. You don't play any instruments right. on it. It's just narration, but I've never heard such a mank narration. Well, let it? me tell you about that. So here's another story. Go on. So basically, I went to the studio, his place, Black Barn, and I went in with a guitar on my shoulder, basically to try and sneak on some guitar onto a track. That was the aim. <laughs> Trying to get a bit of royalties. <laughs> no, just um, <laughs> I wanted to play on one of his songs. Yeah. You know, um, I'd loved working with him. So I step in and he sticks a sheet of paper in my face with lyrics on it and said, what do you think of that? I read through it and I went, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. And he says, get in that <laughs> live in the recording booth and record and just say it, spoken word. He said, just read through it. And I went, okay. So I kind of, as soon as I'd walked in, I'd been kind of engineered into this spoken word thing. So I did it, came out. He's on the desk. He puts the fader up and he's listening to it. But after he's put that fader up, he's pulled it down and pulled the second fader up, which I instantly recognised. It was Steve Craddock, Chopper, as we called yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Steve Craddock. With a br brummy version. With a brummy version. <laughs> so, right, he's going between these two faders and he goes, he turns around to me and he goes, God's a mank. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is, we know that, don't we? He said, God's a mank. Yeah. He was like, he went, brummy, mank, brummy, mank. And he went, God's a mank. <laughs> that was it. And that's how that tr track came about. Amazing. You mentioned there briefly, so you're in the, the roses for that little brief period at the end of the first chapter, but that led yeah. really nicely into what I consider to be some of your greatest work as a collaborator, the stuff you did with Ian Brown. So I'm talking mm. Corpses and My Star and Long Sight. Mm. Those tracks... Yeah. Just when you listen to them, they just they just totally use your technique, your sound. Like I said, it was an opportunity, you know. He let you do what you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, it kind of going from <laughs> yeah, he get he let me do um, be me, yeah. and that's the be that's what I'm saying. That's the beauty of being in a band, you yeah. know, or being with mates, people who are not they're not about hiring session players. I'm not there's anything wrong with being a session player, but um, not for me. You know, um, but I love the disciplines of it. It taught me. But that opportunity, I mean, that's at the end of the day, the roses, the demise of a 97 announcement. In a sense, I was relieved. I was kind of like, yeah, because I couldn't see, even with the continuation of the roses, that I would have that freedom to be me, express me, and have any decisions in it. And this is Ian's solo album. Yeah. So it's, you know, it says Ian Brown and the label is promoting Ian Brown. But, you know, hats off to him for saying, step up, you know, show me what you got. Mm. I love this, you know, or this, let's work on this. And um, we're coming out of an era where obviously, you know, he's grown a beard. He's pushing a lawnmower in his front garden when I was, when I went around to see him, and um, I'm not sure what's going on in his head. But obviously, the next step and so forth. He's, he's think must be thinking about it. But it kind of happened naturally. I, I was just playing tunes on the acoustic guitar, sat there chatting in uh, when he was living in Pepper Street in Lim, and um, it was comfortable. And I was just strumming tunes and chords, and you know, and he said, "I, I like that." And he'd pull out a fag packet and <laughs> write some lyrics. And then mm -hmm. so began, you know, that is quite natural to most people, and yeah. regardless of what level you're at in bands, to write like that, write music from an acoustic guitar and a fag packet and, or whatever's available, and tunes begin and yeah. you enjoy it. 
And I mean, I'm in the same situation now. I'm, you know, myself and Mike Joyce is obviously one of your DJs for your shows. And we kind of write in a very natural way. And if it's not right, then let's wait until it is right, you know? Yeah. And that's what was happening. We, we wrote and there was no record labels involved. There was no publishers involved or anything. We were just writing. And he was giving me the opportunity and I was stepping up, going home to the long site at a little port studio and unfinished monkey business music from my perspective, began on a cassette tape in the box room, <laughs> you know, Amazing. of the house on a, the Anson Estate in Longside. Yeah. And that's why that album means so much. And to both of us, and I'm sure I can speak for Ian in saying that, it was an organic, it was a forget producers, forget all that big production. Everybody's jumped on that bandwagon. Uh, everyone's got John Leckie on their albums. Let's leave the little drum machine running Let's learn how to play these instruments, even if we have to stick numbers on the notes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the keys. Yeah. Wow, what an album. And if you criticised it because you thought, oh, it's underproduced and all this, you didn't get it. Ian said some really nice words about you, and I've got it here written down. This is about Ian Brown talking about Aziz. He said, Aziz is a great talent. I'm lucky that I met him. He's an unsung hero. Everybody says they've never met a better guitar player. You ask anybody who's collaborated with him. By rights, he should be swimming in a guitar-shaped pool, but he doesn't <laughs> want that. For him, it's about the music. He's not in it for the door, unlike 99.9% .9 of musicians. But you, I know you, as Aziz. You'd love a guitar-shaped pool, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would love a guitar-shaped pool in Longsight, long on the Anson Estate. Are you, are you still finding time to get back to Pakistan? I know last time I spoke to oh, you, yeah. you, you're over there quite a lot. Sure, every year. I and try it's my Lahore. Best. Is that where your family from? Well, no, we're spread all over the country. I mean, you've got to bear in mind, like I said, uh, even, you know, coming out of the Second World War, then, you know, uh, India's partition, um, it affected my family greatly. My dad was in the army. We lost family, you know, um, my, my dad's and my mum's. Um, direct you know parents grandparents so forth there were people killed um whoever survived moved again my reasons for doing arts council projects because i wanted to explore what are my roots you know it's a part that i don't know about so i wanted to know about um the punjab i wanted to know about lahore but also about amritsar which is where it began my both my parents are from amritsar originally that's where the story really begins. So I did a solo album, as some people know, but I've never released it, called Lahore to Longsight. And that album has all my friends on it, from the Smiths, the Roses, uh, uh, Paul Weller, uh, Denise Johnson, Primal Scream at the time. Uh, you know, it's kind of people contributing to Goldfinger, you know. Um, I just, it's in me. I just want to know. Everybody, I think, feels... They would like to know if they could about where they come from, where their parents have been, where, where they're from, their grandparents. And and my story is there. So I got a big connection. So every year I try to go out. I, I play in a, a band called Overload from Lahore, which is pretty big in Pakistan and in the Pakistani community around the world. But I also work with other people in Pakistan. Uh, I've got into the history, I've got into the culture, the music scene especially. That's where I've got into. And... 2003 was my first British Council trip to Pakistan on a tour and, and that's when they came to the shows and I saw people who looked like my dad. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was my dad, but younger. <laughs> so the family members, that is that you talking about family yeah, members? Yeah, family members, yeah. uncles, aunties I've never seen before. I can't, I remember, last time I saw them was when I was three years old. I barely remember. I got dreams. Were they dreams or was it reality? I don't actually know. But I'm a Mancunian, but there's a part of me which is that... 
And that's the part I'm exploring and I'm still exploring to this day. But one thing I must explain that I've always felt in Longsight is that obviously there's a big Pakistani community in Manchester, very big, and in various cities and towns around the country. But that community is not the community that lives back home. And we seem to hang on to a bygone era, which for me personally is part of the issues and inhibitions that I have. And back home, they've moved on. I remember going back to Pakistan. Here's another story. It, using words which sounded like Shakespeare. Right? <laughs> this is the best way I can describe it. It's like me going back and talking Shakespeare to people who speak colloquial Mancunian or something. You know, and they're like, because you thought at me. you thought that's what they'd understand and, and that's what to. I was taught. Yeah. So let's talk about Manchester. It's very much your home now. And Aye. a big part of what we're talking about in these podcasts is the, the spirit of the city, the spirit of the region. Do you recognise that we have a particular kind of spirit here? And if so, how would you describe it? Well, you'd have to be blind to not see, <laughs> to not recognise it. I mean, man, what a place to live. I've always been almost like the underdog kind of person. And I've been treated as that as well. So... I mean, it's like I was showing you before, you know, my football team, everybody assumes in United or City. But I'm actually, uh, as I showed you, you know, Sligo Rovers. Right. Where's, where's that from then? Where's that <laughs> well, that's West Coast Island. Right. Um, and how did you end up supporting them? I was on tour in Ireland and we got to Sligo. I was in a little pub and they were watching the footy and there was a whole load of United shirts in there. And this little guy, little Irish guy who was complaining to these young kids saying that they should be Sligo Rovers fans and that, um, you know, they're a disgrace and all this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of agreed with him. And I and I was in this kind of... It was after the Yanks took over United as such and I wasn't particularly FC United, but I was feeling I was losing it. And when he said that, I just it just clicked. I just straight away was going like, listen, mate, if they won't support, you know, Sligo, I'll support Sligo. It was great. You know, I felt revitalised. And over the past few years, it's just been kind of like, I mean, other basketball and rugby are my big. And you've got to bear in mind that my taste in sports, again, are a reflection of I hate the stereotype and the generalisation. So when I was at school, I wanted to be the opposite to he's Pakistani, he's going to be into cricket and badminton. <laughs> oh, no, I play basketball and rugby. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same thing again. But uh, the, it's just I feel great now, you know, over the past few years watching um, a team which sometimes, you know, struggles but does great. But those achievements, I love it. I love supporting a team that needs the support. Back to Manchester, what are your favourite places in the city at the moment? You're asking the wrong person. I'm a, I'm a guy who doesn't venture out much. I, it, although people would say on social media, every day you're somewhere different and you, you're always on the go, which I am. I keep myself busy, but I'm not a person whose life revolves around, say, like the bars and the clubs and so forth. It revolves around work. Yeah. So I'm so busy working and my work is what I love. Like I said right now, because I'm working uh, within the arts, as well as the rock and roll lifestyle, a kind of lifestyle with <laughs> the rock and roll business, mm. um, that I um, have started to go to the museums and the libraries and the art centres and kind of looking at them and saying that I want to see change here and then finding like-minded people like Esme Ward of Manchester Museum to work with and Home and Dave Mutry from Home. Now, these are chief execs giving yeah. me time of day to talk about can I 
introduce some musical projects into these places that yeah. interests me if you say about going out in manchester yeah people's museum manchester museum yeah. home which is a fantastic development and uh, other places you know band on the wall have got their sound brighter sounds and uh, the mif and um you know factory and all these things they're the things that interest interest me and also what can be developed in inner city Manchester, Longside, mm-hmm. and not just Hume, Mossside, Longside, Cheetah Mill, but, you know, what can be developed into Gorton and, you know, Ashton, and we could really do with some, you know, organisations, developments uh, into these places, uh, musical, arts, and so on, for young kids from council estates to go and do their thing. Let them do their thing and their kind of music and the way that they embrace music and a digital culture, shall we say. I've embraced digital culture because I want to have an empathy towards how the younger developing and not be the person dictating to them that this is how it should be. Mm-hmm. You have to learn how to use Instagram and Snapchat and also things like TikTok, you know, which uh, used to be musically. You know, kids are throwing shapes and miming to music, making videos on the phone. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm interested in, making music through phones a couple more questions one is if i was to ask you who are your favorite humans of manchester of all time past or present dead or alive who would they be <laughs> well the first person that comes to mind is the great johnny J. you know legend of manchester underrated or known in a lot of respects but if you go back to the days of you know a guy called gerald and urban cookie crew and you know 52nd street and all these uh, you know that era of house music entering into Manchester, a history that's never been... It's been told in bits, but I don't believe that the truth of it through experts and people who were there... Johnny was Johnny J, Cheetah Mill Boy, signed to Zomba, um, same time Teddy Riley's there, The yeah. Roses, you know, all that kind of era, who's also involved with people like that, you mm-hmm. know, and doing remixes for, and re, at the same time remixes for, you know, Gabrielle and... Uh, his work with Urban Cookie Crew, guy called Gerald, and also with um, Sean, MC Busby, yeah. you know, How Sleep the Brave and stuff like that. And Johnny was partners with a guy called Carl, North Manchester again. You and, know, And Johnny's still with us and he's got the biggest smile that you'll ever see in the city. He's got a beautiful <laughs> smile, hasn't he? Absolutely. But he's a guy who champions that kind of low-income family, you know, w- what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but also is a big part of Manchester history, if you ask the late Tony Wilson, he'd tell you about Johnny J. Absolutely. You know, if you ask people who've worked with him from Ian Brown and so forth, they'll tell you about Johnny J. Mm. Uh, and I, that's why I say that, because there's not enough programmes, shows, and he's not one to step up and say that. So I can't really think of anybody else. And You mentioned I'll, two names there that I thought you might want to put in, Tony Wilson and Ian Brown, maybe. Um, no, I think there's enough people singing their praises and not not to take anything away from them. And obviously because I owe a lot to Ian as well in respect of where I am today. Yeah. But because of the unsung heroes, that's what I'm about. And then talk about the late Diane Charlemagne, who's the lead singer of 52nd Street, and also for Moby, and not lead singer, but was in Moby as that's well. Right, yeah. There are people, uh, the late Lenny, who's the bass player with Sister Sledge from Moss Side, who passed on. 
um, the guys who are from Harlem Spirits, Mikey Wilson, fantastic, you know, one of my favorite drummers of all time. Yeah. Um, you know, there are people, I'd rather talk about the people you don't, that don't get the mentions that they showed, uh, you know, Sean, you know, from MC Busby, um, people like that. Um, there are a lot of people like that. Last question, Aziz, if I was asked you to describe Manchester in three words, what would they be? Well, all I know is Longsight loves you. <laughs> so That's perfect. And man. I'm sure that um, for each area of Manchester, you know, it's a similar thing. Yeah. Beautiful. That's why you still live there. Aziz Ibrahim, thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. There you go. That was Aziz Ibrahim. Make sure you join us next week where I'll be speaking to Helen Pankhurst, activist, author, granddaughter of Sylvia Pankhurst and great-granddaughter of leading suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Humans Excess and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us. Feel free to leave us a comment. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.